Well, Nick, I can't believe it's been a full year since we did the OBGYN Intern Challenge of 2021. Yes, and I think the most exciting news that we're going to break on the podcast today is that it's back for 2022. Yes. So if you are a fourth year medical student who has matched into OBGYN residency in the United States, we highly encourage you to participate. And um, we will be sending out an enrollment form on our website and also we'll be putting it onto our Twitter as well as all of our other social media platforms. So you should definitely sign up. Yes. Head over to obginternchallenge.com. Check out the enrollment tab and you can find the enrollment survey there. We'll start the course up on May 2nd, so get excited. And as always, this is absolutely free for you if you are a medical student. Definitely take advantage of this course that will hopefully help you and get you prepared for your intern year. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Kriags over, over coffee. coffee. So today, guys, we are going to be going back to our journal club, and we are going to be talking about the ALPS study. Um, so Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So we'll review the ALPS study and what we already know about its subject, antenatal corticosteroids. We'll understand the reasons behind what we do. Why do we give steroids and when do we give steroids? And then finally, we'll review some follow-up and how we practice now. So Faye, it's a catchy title. I love the saying yeah. out loud, the Alps study. It puts me like somewhere in like Southern France, right? But it's not about <laughs> mountains. <laughs> no, unfortunately. <laughs> so the Alps study, the actual title is the antenatal Betamethasone for women at risk for late preterm delivery is like the actual stu study title. Um, but ALP stands for antenatal late preterm steroids. And so that's where we get that catchy title. You know, we always like to start off with some background information, Nick. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, who did the study, who published it, why was it done? Yeah, so this was another study that was done by the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development and the Maternal Fetal Medicine Units Network. Um, and the study was published actually fairly recently um, while we were in residency, Faye. It was in the New England Journal in 2016. The study was done basically because, as we know, steroids are widely used up to 34 weeks. And prior to this study, that's really where we stopped. And that was decided after a consensus conference held by the National Institutes of Health in 1994, demonstrating that based on a number of studies, there was very strong evidence that corticosteroids helped to reduce adverse neonatal outcomes such as death, respiratory distress syndrome, and other morbidities. It was recommended, though, that steroids should not be given after 34 weeks because babies just generally did well after 34 weeks. Um, but it became clear later on in further study that infants born in this late preterm period from 34 weeks to 37 weeks still had some increased neonatal and childhood risks compared to term infants. And actually, it's kind of surprising. Um, there's a lot of deliveries that happen in this period. You know, 8% of deliveries in the United States occur in the late preterm time period. So ultimately with the ALP study, the questions that we were hoping to answer was does administration of betamethasone um, as the kind of predominant steroid used in the United States to patients likely to deliver in the late preterm period defined as 34 weeks to 36 and 6 weeks, 
decrease respiratory and other neonatal morbidities. And a presumed hypothesis is yes, but there actually isn't like a, a hypothesis here. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so kind of let's move on from there, Faye. Let's talk about the study itself. Right. So um, in terms of the methods of the study, in terms of who participated, so this was done at 17 university-based clinical centers participating in the MFMU network. And um, the recruitment for the study began in October of 2010 and went through February of 2015. So pretty long time period, five years. The eligibility criteria were those that had a single live intrauterine pregnancy between 34 weeks and zero days to 36 weeks and five days. And they had to have a high probability of delivery in the late preterm period, which they defined as preterm labor with intact membranes, and they were at least three centimeters dilated or 75% effaced, or they had spontaneous rupture of membranes at this time period. And if neither applied, then there was expected preterm delivery for some other indication um, via induction of labor or C-section between 24 hours to seven days after planned randomization. So for some medical reason, they had to be delivered in this time period. They were not eligible if they were expected to deliver in less than 12 hours for any reason. So usually they would say that this was because they were ruptured with more than six contractions per hour or a cervical dilation of three centimeters or more, um, unless Pitocin was withheld for at least 12 hours, but other induction agents were allowed. If there was chorioamnionitis, if there was cervical dilation of eight centimeters or more, which makes sense, most people will deliver within 12 hours if they're eight centimeters dilated and also evidence of non-reassuring fetal status that would require immediate delivery. They also were not eligible if they previously received steroids for fetal lung maturity in pregnancy, if they were candidates for stress dose steroids, there was some contraindication to giving beta-methasone, there was pregestational diabetes, or there was a known major fetal anomaly. In terms of how the study was done, so after the subjects were consented, they were allocated in a one-to-one ratio to either a course of steroids, which was beta-methasone given as a 12-milligram dose um, twice 24 hours apart, or placebo. And then they were stratified by a few things, so by clinical site and gestational age categories, which they defined as those that they thought were supposed to be earlier, so the 34 to 35 week group, and then a 36 week group. Um, The study was double blind, meaning that the study participant and the investigator did not know if they got beta-methasone or placebo. And then the rest of their labor and delivery management was just managed per protocol of whatever institution that they were at. So now knowing this, Nick, what outcomes were they actually looking for? Yeah, so always important in a study to look at exactly what the primary outcome was and how they decided on the number of patients that they needed, basically. So in this study, the primary outcome was actually a composite endpoint, looking at the need for respiratory support by 72 hours of age in the neonate. And that respiratory support um, composite endpoint could consist of CPAP or high-flow nasal cannula for at least two consecutive hours an oxygen requirement with an inspired fraction of at least 30% for at least four continuous hours, or a need for ECMO or mechanical ventilation. Stillbirth and neonatal death prior to 72 hours were also included in both composite outcomes as those could be competing events. As you imagine, if you can't breathe, those might be important things to be aware of. And then subgroup analysis for the primary outcome 
and severe respiratory morbidity was planned and looked at in the 34 to 35 week versus 36 week group, the indication for entry into the trial, for planned C-sections versus planned vaginal deliveries, for fetal sex, and for race and ethnicity. Secondary outcomes were a lot and predominantly looked at neonatal things, um, but mainly included other markers of severe respiratory morbidity like transantikypnia of the newborn, apnea, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, need for surfactant, um, but then also looked at things like hypoglycemia, need for neonatal resuscitation, difficulty feeding, interventricular hemorrhage, sepsis, death prior to hospital discharge, um, a lot of things that, again, are important safety markers for neonatal outcomes. Um, and again, presumably the kind of risks to mothers in this were not great, and so there's less of an emphasis on maternal outcomes than there were on fetal outcomes. Again, this is something that we wanted to look at to know whether babies did better. So Faye, now that we've talked about what we were looking for and how we got there, what were the results? Right. So as you can imagine, they had a huge population that they um, screened because it was five years at 17 large academic centers. So out of um, more than 24,000 patients screened, 2,831 were eligible and consented and randomized. Out of those, 1429 got betamethasone and then 1402 got placebo. So interestingly, only 860 or 60% um, of those that got betamethasone ended up getting both doses. And that was just because presumably uh, they delivered before they could get that second dose within that 24-hour time period. And then similarly, 59% of those in the placebo group actually got both doses. So pretty similar. Again, that group just delivered before they could get that second dose. In terms of their outcomes, they actually had no stillbirths or neonatal deaths within 72 hours, which is pretty consistent because these are usually babies who are born after 34 weeks and do well. There were only four women who were lost to follow-up. In terms of their primary outcome, this occurred less frequently in the beta-methasone group than placebo, um, which is what they thought was going to happen. So when they looked at that primary outcome, and again, that's that respiratory distress with the stillbirth and neonatal death within 72 hours, um, that outcome occurred in about 11.6% in the beta-methasone group compared with 14.4%, so with a risk reduction of 08 um, And the number needed to treat that they found to prevent this primary outcome was 35 um, none of this was changed in post hoc analysis and none of the subgroup analyses were significant. Now, the secondary outcome was interesting as well. So when they looked at severe respiratory morbidity composite outcome, um, it was also significantly reduced in the beta-methasone compared to placebo group. So this was where they were not including those with like stillbirth, neonatal death, death before the discharge, et cetera. Here, there was a risk reduction of 0.67, so even higher, and the number needed to treat was only 25. Um, they also found that the rate of TTN, need for resuscitation, and also bronchopulmonary dysplasia were all significantly less frequent in the beta-methasone group. And importantly, they did not find any difference in chorioamnionitis or endometritis in moms who received beta-methasone compared to placebo. And then the last thing that I wanted to kind of highlight that I thought was interesting in this study was that there was a significant difference in terms of hypoglycemia where glucose was less than 40. So in the beta-methasone group, 24% or 300 143 women um, had neonates that had episodes of hypoglycemia compared to just 14.9% in the placebo group. So basically saying that those patients who received beta-methasone were more likely to have neonates that have hypoglycemia. All right, Nick. So 
after going through that study, what was the impact of all of this? Yeah, so you know, as you've reviewed well, Faye, we found basically that betamethasone, even up to 36 weeks and five days, can decrease respiratory morbidity for neonates. And this is actually consistent with previous data from another trial called the ASTEX trial, which stands for the Antenatal Steroids for Term Caesarean Section. Um, this was performed in the UK and did find decreased rates of NICU admission for respiratory distress. It actually changed practice in the UK where babies there actually get steroids at term for cesarean deliveries not in labor. So even moving beyond this late preterm period and giving steroids for, for term babies to reduce respiratory morbidity, which is interesting. ACOG actually has followed suit in light of the ALPS trial to recommend a single course of steroids to patients between 34 and 36 and six weeks at risk of imminent preterm delivery um, who have not previously received steroids. So I think that it's had a really big impact overall, but kind of, I think depending on where you are, sort of some of the competing things that occur, like the rates of hypoglycemia may change or alter practice a little bit. What do you guys do at Penn, Faye? So at Penn, you know, we do usually recommend giving a course of steroids for patients who are 34 to 35 weeks with, um, you know, potential delivery in the next seven days. But we also counsel pretty strongly about the risk of hypoglycemia, and we discuss the risk of going to the NICU for respiratory distress for, versus the need to go to the NICU for hypoglycemia. So for most of our patients, the, the cutoff here at Penn is that if they are less than 35 weeks at delivery, that they automatically need to go to the NICU for at least some evaluation, and they may come right back out. So you know, our recommendation for steroids less than 35 weeks is definitely a little bit stronger. But especially for patients after 36 weeks, a lot of times we counsel them about, you know, the very low risk of respiratory distress in these babies and the higher risk potentially of hypoglycemia. So needing to go to the NICU, not for respiratory issues, but just for hypoglycemia. And so it's a conversation with the patient usually around 36 weeks. What about you, Deb? Yeah, I think it's actually a very similar strategy to that. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that we're starting to see more published data on now that we're five years out from the ALPS trial is that patients are asking me what the long-term effects of exposure to steroids are. Um, and I think that, you know, we're just now starting to see some of that data, particularly directly out of the ALPS trial. And so I think that that'll be sort of an ongoing question, but our approach right now is definitely very similar, I think, to what you guys do is it's a shared decision-making discussion, particularly after 36 weeks, as you said, because of that rate of hypoglycemia in babies who are exposed to steroids. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we were in residency, potentially it was because it was in light of this study just coming out and maybe not having as many much of the data as we do now about you know hypoglycemia as well as about long-term outcomes of exposure in utero to steroids but i felt like when we were residents we really there was i think less discussion about that hypoglycemia aspect and i felt like we were giving patients you know all the way up to 36 weeks and 5 days um steroids and saying that it was just a recommendation yeah, well, it's all about being in maternal fetal medicine where you paint with all of the shades of gray. <laughs> right. <laughs> Definitely. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So 
So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode, as well as all of our previous episodes and that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you have a question for us, a suggestion for the show, or a correction, go ahead and email us at CreogsOverCoffee at gmail.com. Our friends over at Rosh Review have a special deal that they're offering for um, residents out there. So if you like access to Rosh Review, you and your friends can come together and get a group discount. So if you have at least seven of you and your friends and want to get this discount, you can come together and chat with Rosh email them, and you'll also get your own subscription for free. All the members of your group on top of this will get free access to a new mock ABOG qualifying exam, which is 200 additional ABOG formatted questions that's set up like the actual ABOG qualifying exam. That's your written boards. That's $119 value. So if you and your friends want to have access to Rosh, go ahead and go onto our website where we'll put a link and uh, you'll be able to sign up right there. All right, Faye, so one of the things that I'm really excited about is this recently released CHAPS trial, and I saw on the OBG project that they've got a great summary out already. Yeah, so if you want to keep up to date to all those studies that are coming out, not only in OBGYN, but also other practice-changing studies and other specialties, make sure you go onto the OBG project and sign up so that you can keep up to date. Fourth-year residents can get the premium project, OBG First, absolutely free. It allows you to create your own library, save resources for you to be able to access later, as well as see something like the second trimester ultrasound atlas that lets you get brushed up on all those images that are going to show up on your written boards. And of course, if you are a resident in general, you can get their core curriculum uh, on their website. So make sure you go ahead and go onto our website to figure out a little bit more about how to sign up for the OBG project and also how to sign up for OBG first.